This episode features descriptions of kidnapping, terrorism, and violence that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. May 8, 1978. Fifty-four days had passed since former Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro's kidnapping. The 61-year-old politician was emotionally and physically drained. Through the entire ordeal, Moro had only ever seen one face, that of Mario Moretti, the leader of the Red Brigades. Today, Moro's captor walked into the room where he was held. Moretti informed Moro that his time was up. The Red Brigades had tried time and time again to exchange him for communist prisoners. But for some inexplicable reason, the Italian parliament refused to negotiate. Moretti may have been confused by the government's actions, but Moro knew exactly what was going on. Italy's politicians were playing hardball, refusing to negotiate with terrorists. With that in mind, Moro made his last request, a typewriter. He wrote a letter to his wife saying, Dear Norina, they have told me that they are going to kill me in a little while. I cannot accept the disgraceful and ungrateful decision taken by the Christian Democratic Party. I request that at my funeral, there be no one present representing the Italian state. This letter provides a rare window into Moro's mental state during his imprisonment. He could have railed against his kidnappers. He could have blamed the Italian political structure, how it drove a sharp divide between the left and the right, but he didn't. Instead, he accused his own party, implicating them in his capture and inevitable demise. Aldo Moro had developed his own conspiracy theory about his own death. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our second and final episode on the mysterious 1978 kidnapping and assassination of Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro. The story of his death is almost too strange to believe, and maybe that's why it spawned Conspiracy Theories. Last episode, we discussed the official story that Morrow was kidnapped and executed by radical communist terrorists called the Red Brigades. This time, we'll discuss two theories surrounding Morrow's death. Conspiracy theory number one, a secret CIA task force executed Aldo Morrow. And conspiracy theory number two, Morrow's own political party ordered his death hoping to preserve their power. 
We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In the late 1970s, an ideological gap tore Italy apart. Prime Minister Aldo Romeo Luigi Moro dedicated his life to compromise. This meant bringing communists into Italian politics, a policy that led to his capture and death. Officially, his kidnappers were far-left extremists who resented Moro's centrist methods. They feared that if the Communist Party collaborated with the conservative Christian Democrats, they'd sacrifice their values. But maybe the Red Brigades had more complex motives. Perhaps they resented Moro's progressive policies because they weren't actually a communist cell. At least not after the CIA infiltrated them. That's the crux of conspiracy theory number one. The CIA executed Moro to prevent the communists from holding power in Italy. To explain why we have to go back to the end of World War II. On May 7, 1945, Nazi Germany surrendered to Allied forces. The war in Europe ended, largely due to the cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union. But once the fighting ceased, Russia's Red Army swept across Eastern Europe to extend their empire— 
The U.S. vowed to fight communism as it spread across the globe, worming its way through Italy. In the wake of World War II, Italians flocked to communist ideology. Their country was industrializing, and citizens gradually exchanged their agricultural lifestyles for thankless factory jobs. The PCI, or Italian Communist Party, with its workers' rights advocacy, gained steady popularity. The United States perceived the PCI as an ally of the Soviet Union and therefore a threat to democracy. In one of its first Cold War operations, the CIA funneled at least $5 million U.S. million to the PCI's biggest opponent, the Christian Democratic Party. The CIA was also heavily involved in Italy's 1948 elections. Anti-Soviet posters littered Italian alleyways. Italian-Americans wrote to their distant relatives. Frank Sinatra appeared on an hour-long radio show, pleading for an anti-communist outcome. Although the Christian Democrats won, the election showed that one in three Italians identified as communists. Given those numbers, U.S. President Harry S. Truman's administration feared that Italy would soon become a Soviet puppet. To stop that from happening, the U.S. stepped up its intervention. The CIA helped Italy form their own military intelligence organization called CIFAR. Some Italian politicians believe that the organization received orders directly from the American agency. They were right to be worried. In 1951, CIFAR Director General Umberto Broccoli created a secret committee to coordinate with the CIA. They developed a so-called stay-behind network, a top-secret military force that could spring up after a Soviet invasion. If USSR troops occupied Italy, the CIFAR soldiers would stay behind rather than fight the enemy head-on. They were modeled on World War II's resistance cells that popped up in France and Germany. The CIA created stay-behind forces in numerous countries. The Italian network was formally named Operation Gladio, and its soldiers were called gladiators. Their motto was Silendo Libertatum Servo, or by being silent, I protect liberty. Indeed, everyone involved in Operation Gladio kept it a complete secret. It was highly classified for decades, which is particularly impressive given the scope of the program. According to a letter from General Broccoli dated October 8, 1951, approximately 1,500 Italians received advanced covert operations training in the United Kingdom. They were focused on a Soviet invasion that never came, but they failed to quell the rise of communism within Italy. In 1953, an Italian war hero and founding member of the Christian Democratic Party named Paolo Taviani became the prime minister. He barely beat the communists. Their support had jumped 5% since the last election. In response, Taviani and CIFAR enhanced Italy's stay-behind operation. They constructed a secret headquarters on Sardinia, an island off the Italian coast. This base became known as the Saboteurs Training Center. 
Even with Gladio in place, the 1963 elections concerned the CIA. Combined, the Italian leftist parties earned 39% of the vote. Alarmingly, the Christian Democrats fell to 38%. If their opposition ever united behind one party, the Christian Democrats would lose an election for the first time since the war. But the vote was split. The less radical Italian Socialist Party nabbed a significant portion of the communist vote. Nevertheless, Italians' multi-party system ensured that communists held more seats in parliament than ever before. Controversially, Prime Minister Aldo Moro embraced the newly empowered left. He appointed communist representatives to his cabinet and passed progressive social reforms. His administration raised the minimum wage, strengthened social security benefits, and fought the housing crisis that gripped Italy's largest cities. But Moro's informal alliance with the Italian Communist Party was controversial and polarizing. To the United States and Operation Gladio, he was a threat to democracy. So the CIA allegedly did what it does best. It organized a coup. Coming up, far-right conspirators respond to Moro's communist compromise. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. You know you can find love in a bar or on an app. Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on, and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. And now, back to the story. After World War II, the United States feared that the Soviet Union would sweep across Western Europe. In light of this, the CIA hatched a secret plan to leave armed soldiers in certain European countries. These stay-behind networks were poised to eventually rise up against Soviet occupiers. But it became clear that the USSR would not be invading Italy anytime soon. 
So instead, Italy's stay-behind network, Operation Gladio, dedicated themselves to fighting homegrown communism, even if it meant betraying their own government. On March 25, 1964, the former head of Operation Gladio, Police Chief General Giovanni De Lorenzo, allegedly proposed a plot. He wanted to violently overthrow Prime Minister Aldo Moro. According to rumor, he collaborated with the CIA. During this proposed attack, 5,000 policemen would seize media offices and the Communist Party's headquarters. 731 people would be arrested and brought to the Gladio headquarters in Sardinia. We'll probably never know what De Lorenzo and the CIA intended to do next. The coup, codenamed Piano Solo, never made it beyond the planning stage. Then, on December 7, 1970, former naval officer Junio Valerio Borghese led another failed rebellion. This revolt was named Operation Tora Tora, and it mirrored the Piano Solo plan. Borghese even recruited from Gladio soldiers, along with neo-fascist terrorist groups. Once again, this coup proved to be short-lived. An unknown official ordered Borghese to call off the attack. The story of Gladio's cooperation with fascist extremists doesn't end there. On May 31, 1972, in the village of Peteano, the police received an anonymous tip about a stolen car. When four officers investigated the vehicle, they inadvertently triggered a bomb. One policeman was injured and the other three died. Two days later, the station received another anonymous phone call. According to the police, the Red Brigades claimed responsibility for the attack. Ballistics expert Marco Marine subsequently published a report further implicating the Red Brigades. He said the bomb matched those used by communist extremists. His findings spurred a huge crackdown against communists with up to 200 arrests. But that wasn't the whole story. Some leftists proposed that the Italian government was in league with the terrorists, meaning they planted the bomb. Then they framed the Red Brigades to justify the wave of arrests afterward. This isn't baseless speculation. Over a decade after the Peteano massacre, Ballistics expert Marco Marine was exposed as a fraud. He'd secretly worked for the fascist terrorist group Ordine Nuovo. What's more, the Peteano massacre's ballistics didn't match the profile of the Red Brigades. In reality, the explosive used C4, and according to conspiracy theorists, it came from an Operation Gladio stockpile. Around the same time, Vincent Vinciguerra, a neo-fascist terrorist, confessed to the bombing. He said the government had ordered the attack. In a 1992 BBC documentary, Vinciguerra explained that guerrillas executed countless false flag operations on the government's orders. Far-right politicians used the uptick in terrorist activity as an excuse to declare a state of emergency. Then they could seize power and enable a stricter, more authoritarian government, fascist in all but its name. 
These tactics are strikingly similar to those the CIA used in their international initiatives. Many anti-CIA conspiracy theories draw from a document called U.S. Army Field Manual 30-31B, otherwise known as the Westmoreland Manual. The manual outlined a plan to use stay-behind forces to orchestrate terrorist attacks and coups in countries that failed to fight communism from within, which seems to be exactly what happened in Italy. According to the Westmoreland Manual, the CIA had a long track record of successfully executing these exact tactics. They supported a neo-fascist regime in Greece in the late 1940s, Brazil in the early 60s, and Chile a few years later. The list goes on. The CIA was practically invented for this purpose. But since the manual's discovery in 1976, the United States has insisted that the document is a forgery, a piece of Soviet propaganda. Even if the Westmoreland Manual is a hoax, much of its information has been confirmed elsewhere. For all intents and purposes, 30-31B might as well be real. The document doesn't say if the CIA was involved in Italy, but it seemed possible. The ongoing terror attacks certainly helped destabilize the communists. During Aldo Moro's terms as prime minister, Italy practically devolved into a war zone. Moro tried to make peace and unite his country under a bipartisan cabinet, but his efforts arguably led to further radicalization. Leftists saw the Communist Party as traitors who cooperated with the Christian Democrats. Meanwhile, members of Moro's party turned against him as he gave power to the communists. Moro faced opposition from abroad as well. At some point in 1975, he and his wife, Eleonora, went on a diplomatic trip to Washington, D.C. Eleonora later claimed that during this visit, her husband's life was threatened by a, quote, high-ranking United States political figure. Moro's close friend and party associate, Minister Giovanni Galloni, identified the U.S. official as Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. That same year, Moro and three members of his cabinet met with Kissinger and U.S. President Gerald Ford. A transcription of the conversation, classified by Kissinger himself, showed them grilling Moro. Ford threatened to kick Italy out of NATO if he continued to compromise with communists. Then Kissinger spoke up. He said, Having the communists in the government of Italy would be completely incompatible with continued membership in the alliance. We are willing to cooperate to strengthen the democratic forces, in particularly to help your party, but you have to make the real fight. And Moro did continue to fight, but not against communists. In the face of American threats, he continued advocating for cross-party cooperation. Even after his second and final term, Moro proposed that the new prime minister should include communists in his cabinet as well. This was what the press named the historic compromise. And on March 16, 1978, Aldo Moro was headed to the Italian parliament to cast his vote in favor of his own plan. 
As we know, Morrow's driver took him to Parliament that morning, but they never made it. At around 9 o'clock, an armed group of militants sprayed Morrow's car with bullets, killing his bodyguards. But miraculously, Morrow survived. The terrorists grabbed the former prime minister, loaded him into a van, and drove off. A few days later, the Red Brigades took credit for the kidnapping. But that doesn't quite line up with the state of the Red Brigades in 1978. By then, they were a shadow of their former selves. Most of their original leaders had been arrested, and internal friction further weakened the group. According to a declassified CIA primer on the Red Brigades, they were composed of dropouts, students of little academic achievement, lower-ranking union officials, and some drug addicts. The document called the Brigaders hard but stupid. And yet, without any military training, they apparently pulled off the most complicated, sophisticated, and significant kidnapping in the history of Italy. One of the original founders of the Red Brigades, Alberto Franceschini, suggested they had outside help. In a 1999 article in L'Espresso, Franceschini claimed that the CIA had infiltrated his organization. He argued that Moretti abducted Moro under CIA orders. But Franceschini's logic didn't always hold up. He said that the Red Brigades couldn't pull off the capture on their own. But the fact was, they'd engineered dozens of kidnappings before Morrow. Moretti has even joked about this theory. He quipped that he'd be a pretty poor CIA operative, considering he was later caught and spent 20 years in prison. Whether or not the CIA was involved... U.S. President Jimmy Carter wasted no time in sending aid after Morrow's kidnapping. It came in the form of a psychiatric expert and hostage negotiator, Steve Pychinik. But according to Pychinik's own book, We Killed Aldo Moro, he wasn't there to help the prime minister. Under orders from the Carter administration, Pychinik's mission was to ensure that Moro died in captivity. That's pretty damning. But this still doesn't seem like a CIA hit job to me. The Red Brigades held Morrow for 54 days before finally assassinating him. If the United States wanted him dead, they could have done it much faster. Unless the plan wasn't just to kill Morrow, but to kill any chance that his historic compromise might succeed. The Morrow case kept Italy on the edge of its seat for months, and fomented a new wave of anti-communist sentiment. Maybe that was the CIA's goal all along. If that was their plan, it definitely succeeded. The Italian Communist Party never gained the support they'd had under Morrow. This theory seems airtight, except for the testimony from the Red Brigades themselves. Many former members of the terrorist cell have been arrested and tried for Moro's kidnapping. Most of them have confessed to the crime. If they were operating under CIA orders, why would they take the fall for their American handlers? Now, a high-level government operative might allow themselves to be arrested in the name of the cause, especially if they could count on a light sentence or a pardon. 
Red Brigade's leader, Mario Moretti, was released on parole in 1998, only 20 years after the assassination. Pretty generous sentence for a man who'd murdered a prime minister. Still, no one wants to spend 20 years in jail. There's definitely a lot of evidence that something suspicious was going on with America's stakes in the Morrow capture. But there's very little proof that the CIA was directly involved with his kidnapping. On a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is totally unbelievable and 10 is a confirmed fact, I give conspiracy theory number 1 a 5. While it's possible that Operation Gladio and the CIA killed Aldo Moro, it's just as likely that the Red Brigades acted alone. I was convinced as soon as I learned that the CIA created a secret army in Italy. Operation Gladio's existence is beyond doubt. It was declassified in 1990. Combined with the CIA's actions across the globe and the two attempted coups within Italy, I'm giving this theory an 8 out of 10. The CIA might have contributed to Aldo Moro's death, but as we've already noted, the United States was far from the only government that wanted him gone. Moro's greatest enemy might have been his own party. Coming up, we'll explore our second and final theory. The Christian Democrats betrayed Moro. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. In 1951, the CIA and the Italian intelligence agency CIFAR set up a network of soldiers called Operation Gladio. They may have ordered Aldo Moro's assassination. But they weren't the only shadowy government initiative operating behind the scenes. Italy was home to a deep state composed of the most elite power brokers of the time— politicians, journalists, and businessmen, members of one of the world's most notorious secret societies. Yep, we're talking about Freemasons. We know the Masons exerted immense influence in 20th century Italian politics. It's thought that they may also have ordered Moro's death. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Moro's own political party, secretly run by a Masonic organization, executed him because he threatened their influence. Formed in 1877, the Propaganda Masonica was the Roman branch of the Freemasons. Despite its proximity to the capital, the Propaganda Lodge was only Italy's second most powerful Masonic chapter. As such, it was called Propaganda Du or P2. Because P2 was a minor lodge, it didn't draw much oversight from the greater Masonic order. This meant they could push the rules. In general, Masons weren't supposed to discuss politics in the lodges, but P2 was a hotbed for debates and negotiations. In particular, P2 became a safe haven for fascists. 
people whose ideologies had fallen out of fashion after Mussolini's execution. His former collaborators disavowed the party, but only in public. In the privacy of P2, they could openly discuss their hatred of communism and their desire for a new, more successful fascist regime. One of P2's most outspoken members was named Licio Gelli. At age 18, Gelli had joined an Italian military force that installed a brutal fascist dictator in Spain. And during World War II, he helped create the Italian Social Republic, a short-lived Italian government that was effectively a puppet state of Nazi Germany. When the Allies invaded Italy, Canadian forces captured Jelly. In a 1992 BBC documentary, Jelly said, They brought us a sheet of paper and the officer told me to write down my life story. A week later, they asked if I wanted to be parachuted into the North. It was a U.S. colonel who asked, but I said no. My work is over. But his work was far from over. No one truly knows what Jelly did for the next decade after World War II. According to rumors, he either joined the CIA or British intelligence. Some say that he became a temporary communist, working to free political prisoners. Even his status as a Canadian captive is in doubt. Jelly seemingly never shared that detail before the documentary. Most assume that he voluntarily switched sides. One decade after the war, Jelly returned to Italy and pursued a career in business. He rose up the ranks rapidly, starting as a mattress factory sales employee and eventually owning his own textile company. His charisma and networking abilities were already on display, skills that would eventually prove invaluable to propaganda do. They needed Jelly's help. Mussolini had banned secret societies during his reign, and despite support from American Masons, who encouraged P2's anti-communist stance, Italian Freemasonry was struggling to recover. P2's membership was at an all-time low in the 1960s, with fewer than 20 members. In 1964, they reportedly recruited Jelly for his business connections. His fascist history might have made him appealing. Although he'd switched sides during World War II, Jelly had since returned to the far right. He even participated in Valerio Borghese's attempted coup. As a member of P2, Jelly quickly proved his worth. In 1971, he became its de facto leader. And once he had power, Jelly transformed the Masonic Lodge. It had previously been a harmless social club, but Jelly had a grander vision in mind. He encouraged open political discussion. Because P2 was headquartered in Rome, it was the home lodge for every politician who lived there. Jelly specifically recruited these officials and other powerful businessmen and intelligence officials. P2 became a hub of covert fascism and neo-fascist conversation. In 1976, Italy's National Masonic Lodge caught wind of Jelly's transgressions. They swiftly disowned P2. Which may have been exactly what Jelly wanted. Free from their ties to the larger order, 
P2's transformation into a political organization was complete. Journalist Carmine Mino Piccarelli was a member at the time, even though he was strictly opposed to many of its actions. In March 1978, Peccarelli published an article in his magazine, Osservatore Politico. He compared Prime Minister Aldo Moro to Julius Caesar and predicted that something awful would befall him on March 15th, also known as the Ides of March. He was only off by a day. As mentioned last episode, it was strange that Morrow's kidnappers knew exactly where he'd be on March 16th. His driver consistently changed routes as a safety precaution. And yet, the kidnappers knew exactly where Morrow would be. It seemed almost like a lucky guess. Or maybe not. Italian Prime Minister Andreotti was an active member of P2. Maybe Andreotti leaked the whereabouts that led to Moro's kidnapping, and that's just the first strange coincidence. As we touched on before, the United States sent Steve Pychinik to Italy on the day of Moro's capture. Publicly, he was there to negotiate for Moro's release, but he later claimed that privately, a higher-up had given him strict instructions to do whatever he could to prevent that from happening. Much to his surprise, Pichinik reportedly found that the Italian government had no intention of freeing Aldo Moro either. But maybe he shouldn't have been so shocked. Interior Minister Francesco Cosiga's crisis committee was said to be almost entirely comprised of P2 members. Pichinik later said, We found ourselves in this hall filled with generals and politicians, all people who knew him well. And yet, I had this distinct feeling that none of them found Moro amiable or a genius as a person. Cosiga included, it was obvious that I wasn't speaking with his allies. Pychinik's suspicions only grew on April 18, 1978. A Roman newspaper received a communique, allegedly from the Red Brigades. The letter claimed that Aldo Moro had been executed. His body was in Lake Duquesa on a remote mountain nearly 100 miles north of Rome. Interior Minister Cosiga sent hundreds of military officers to the site, but they were unable to find evidence that Moro or the Red Brigades had ever been to the lake. The next day, the Red Brigade sent a photo of the still-alive Moro holding a newspaper with the headline, Aldo Moro Slain. Their accompanying letter accused Cosiga's committee of publishing the false message. According to Pychinik, This accusation was correct. In fact, he thought the article was the government's way of saying that they wanted Moro dead. Pychinik's reasoning was that Moro needed to be killed before he could spill state secrets. A previous letter from the brigades had made a passing reference to NATO's anti-guerrilla activities. The Christian Democrats may have interpreted this as a clear sign that Moro had revealed the existence of Operation Gladio. He needed to be killed as soon as possible before he divulged any more information. 
If you think that logic is hard to follow, you're not alone. If the Red Brigade saw the Christian Democrats as enemies, why would they take their orders? Especially if Morrow was giving up valuable intel. They had no reason to kill their source, especially if doing so would help their opponents. And even if the Red Brigades were under orders to kill Moro, they clearly didn't get the message. They held on to the Prime Minister for another month. Those weeks took their toll on the government officials. Whether or not Cosiga was in on the conspiracy, he appeared to be genuinely distraught. In a 1992 BBC documentary, Cosiga claimed that his decision to refuse negotiation turned his hair white. And shortly after the police discovered Moro's body, Cosiga retired. Well, maybe his guilty conscience was weighing on him. Or maybe he genuinely wanted to free Moro, and the failed negotiations broke his spirit. Afterward, Cosiga insisted that he'd never been a member of Propaganda Do or any Masonic organization, and a public list of nearly 1,000 P2 members didn't include Cosiga. So he probably wasn't in on the conspiracy. More likely, he was a pawn. But let's look at testimony from the actual alleged conspirators. Mino Pecorelli, the troublemaking journalist who'd predicted Moro's kidnapping, was intensely suspicious of both P2, to which he belonged, as well as the CIA. Shortly after Morrow's death in May 1978, he vaguely accused a superpower inspired by the, quote, Logic of Yalta. The Logic of Yalta referenced the 1945 Yalta Agreement between the Soviet Union and the United States. After the devastation of World War II, they'd agreed to divide the responsibility of rebuilding Europe between themselves— While the U.S. promoted democracy and capitalism in Western Europe, the USSR promoted communism. So Pecorelli implicated the United States and its Cold War tactics. Most historians believe that Pecorelli was also teasing his intention to betray P2 and reveal Italy's biggest secret, the existence of Operation Gladio. Less than a year later, on March 20, 1979, Mino Pecorelli was murdered. His homicide is unsolved. But P2 leader Licio Gelli and Prime Minister Giulio Andriotti have both been accused. Their close ties to P2 didn't help their case. P2 became known to the general public in 1981 when police officers found a partial list of its members. The discovery led to a massive scandal. Dozens of politicians resigned. Jelly fled to Switzerland and then South America. He was eventually arrested for his association with far-right terrorism, and the Christian Democrats' reputation never recovered. As reluctant as I was to believe in the Italian deep state, P2's existence and influence is undeniable. On the other hand, Evidence that they directly ordered Moro's assassination is sparse. Prime Minister Andreotti may have cooperated with P2, but he wasn't a member. Neither was Interior Minister Francesco Cosiga. In fact, 
Kosiga later insisted that the decision not to free Morrow was purely diplomatic. All that's assuming we can take him at his word. Hostage negotiator Steve Pychinik implicated Kosiga's administration for publishing the letter that may have killed Morrow. But let's talk about Pychinik's credibility. This wasn't some one-off book. Pychinik is the author of 12 military fiction novels and self-help books. He probably embellished the conspiracy for his book on the Morrow kidnapping. Besides, no one has corroborated his claims, and he only spoke about Operation Gladio after it became public knowledge. Personally, I believe Pychinik. The Christian Democrats' behavior during negotiations only makes sense if we assume they wanted Moro dead. I give conspiracy theory number two a nine out of ten. This almost definitely happened. I'm convinced, too. I think it's very possible P2 leaked Aldo Moro's route to the Red Brigades. And they were certainly poised to influence the Italian government. I give this theory an eight out of ten. Going back to our first theory for a second, I think that Operation Gladio and P2 cooperated to ensure Moro's kidnapping and murder. Both of these top-secret organizations had the exact same goal, eliminate the former prime minister. I still don't believe that Operation Gladio infiltrated the Red Brigades, so I'm inclined to think that conspiracy theory number two is true. The Christian Democrats murdered Moro without help from the CIA. Whoever orchestrated Moro's death, his family lost everything. As far as anyone knows, his final act was to write a letter to his wife, Ilianora, requesting that his fellow Christian Democrats not attend his funeral. True to her late husband's wishes, Ilianora Moro declined a police escort for Moro's body. He was buried in a private ceremony, with only his family in attendance. Later, Moro's family spoke to the media regarding the conspiracies that already surrounded his death. In a public statement, they said, History will judge the life and death of Aldo Moro. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Eric Stankey, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.
Hey, listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.